0: If you're following me, I know where you're going to step. If you can see my trail and you're you're staying on me and you're focused on the trail, I know if you come to a log, 99% of the people will step over the log, just to the other side. That's where I'm going to plant my, my M14 toe popper, a small mine that's going to take your, your foot and maybe part of your leg off. I, I got good at getting people
1: like that. Welcome to Heroes Behind Headlines. I'm your host, Ralph Pizzullo. Today we present the second half of our interview with Henry L. Thompson, a.k.a. Dick Thompson, codename Dynamite, one of the heroes of the secret war in Vietnam. As stated previously, Dick was a distinguished member of the Military Assistance Command Vietnam Studies and Observation Group, a.k.a. macv SAG, a multi-service elite military unit of the Vietnam War so secret that its existence was denied by the U.S. government. In part two, Dick is going to talk about some of the incredible missions he led at the beginning of 1969 as the 1-0 of RT Michigan. They're further detailed in his recently published must-read book, Codename Dynamite. It's my great honor to welcome Dick Thompson as today's hero behind the headline.
2: Heroes behind headlines with Ralph Pizzullo.
1: So, so on this mission, you got gassed.
0: Yeah, we got off the <laughs> we got off the aircraft.
1: Another surprise. Yeah.
0: Yeah, all we were supposed to do was we were gonna go in, go to this cachet that wasn't very far away, put the ammunition in that night, and come back out. Yeah. Um we got off the helicopter and whoa, here's the CS gas, you know, coming at us. We didn't have, you know, the, the gas mask. We didn't take them with us. Yeah. I mean, it's just not something that happened. Right. Usually, if you got gassed, it's because you gassed yourself. Yeah, you know, you, you you threw the grenades upwind and it blew it back on you, or you shot it in the forty the M seventy nine, you know, the forty uh, millimeter version. Yeah, you shot it up and the wind blew it back on you. Yeah. So we didn't carry any with us on this mission. Yeah not expecting to have to use it. And all of a sudden, here's gas. And the pilot said, hey, we don't have gas masks either. We can't come and pick you up. Yeah. So uh, the team leader decided, you know, we we chatted. I said, let's just take them out. I mean, probably about 15 of them. Yeah. And we just, we hunted those jokers down like rabbits. And they they really didn't put up much of a fight. Hmm. So it didn't take us long to take them out. Mm Mm-hmm. And we discovered later that they were not the hardcore NVA soldiers that had been sent. These were guys that were out there just guarding the supply lines and checking. Right. Out. I mean, these these are not the hardcore guys. And yeah, you know, when they encountered a hardcore Sog team, uh, it didn't last long. So yeah. We decided, you know, we've got enough time to to get to the cache. And you know, check it out before it gets all the way dark. Uh, And then, you know, I'll I'll take myself and one of the other indigenous, and we'll go in and plant the, the ammo and stuff while you guys kind yeah. of overwatch for us. And we we'll come back out, and we'll do a night extraction. And yeah. We'll come in, pick us up in the dark, fly us out. Yeah. And that's what we did. Nice. <clears throat>
1: all right. Now let's talk about the Christmas. This is Christmas 68. There had been a like an agreement between President Johnson and, and the North Vietnamese that Christmas Day there was going to be a ceasefire. But you kind of knew that the, the North Vietnamese yeah. were going to probably take advantage. Maybe they'd have a ceasefire in Vietnam, but you weren't operating in Vietnam. Yeah, we weren't right? operating
0: there, and we knew they always violated it anyway. But, you know, the U.S. would... Take that day off, because if if nothing else, try not to get anybody killed on that day. Yeah. You you don't want to notify somebody's parents. (laughs) Right. Son was killed on Christmas Day, so.
1: Yeah, that's rough. You
0: know, that was a good thing to do. Uh, But you knew the North Vietnamese are going to continue to, you know, run their troops down the trail and all that stuff. Yeah. Uh, and we were not operating in Vietnam anyway. Nobody was supposed to know what we were doing. Yeah. So it didn't surprise us when they called us in and said, Man, do we have a deal for you? <laughs> we're going <gonna laughs> to send you over there. Yeah. Yeah. Give you some uh, real targets that
2: we're
0: <laughs> not expecting you to be there. Yeah. And let you just take them out. So uh, I thought, Well, that, that sounds pretty cool. We can, yeah, they're not expecting us. be looking for us we could go in there we the area we're going into had several uh pretty high cliffs you know 300 feet or so high Mm -hmm. we we can crawl out on the edge of those things and we can see the road down there Mm -hmm. and the convoy is coming down you know we we just hit them knock them out yeah yeah that's a good deal
1: yeah so so you go in but uh this time you have a different kind of surprise the first night, I guess it's the second day you're in there, uh, you do see the the convoys coming coming down the road, and you call in F fours, and uh, the third day, starts raining. One of the indigenous guys almost gets bitten by a snake.
0: Yeah, I mean when it you know it, uh, you have to think about the jungle as being you know it's pretty much you know a rainforest. Yeah. And so it's, it rains every day for a little bit anyway. And sometimes it really rains hard. And when it rains hard, uh, just like just like here in the U.S., if it rains hard, the holes that the snakes are in start to fill up and they come out. Yeah. I mean, every time you see a hurricane hit Florida or something like that, there are snakes everywhere. Yeah. Because they have to come out of their holes. Right. <clears throat> so uh, the rain brings them out and they're not happy anyway
2: yeah and when the
0: rain brings them out and, and in that part of of laos uh there's like 40 different species of venomous snakes yeah so you don't want to mess with any of them. yeah uh, because if if one bites you i mean the best case it's going to take probably two hours for a helicopter to get there. You got to fight a battle for an hour or two to be able to get you on the helicopter. And then you got to fly all the way back to the hospital. You already dead.
1: Yeah. You're dead.
2: Yeah.
0: So one gets you, uh, you know, that's, that's not a good deal. Uh, Like, you know, the special ops guys now uh, actually in their med kits, individual med kits that they carry on them. I, they have anti venom based on the area they're going into, uh uh-huh. those particular snakes. Yeah. So they have an opportunity to at least uh you know, survive a snake bite.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well and
0: we didn't have that.
1: <laughs> yeah, in Vietnam there were so many. Yeah. So many different kinds.
0: And you know, we were still, I think uh uh medically we were still kind of behind the curve on coming up with a good and i you know uh treatment you know for snake bikes and the different kinds
2: mm-hmm.
0: plus you, you were just too far away
2: yeah yeah
0: so what you had to do is try to kill them yeah or get away from them
1: right and then the other problem you had were dogs so the north vietnamese used dogs a lot to try to sniff you guys out
0: yeah like we were Talking about in the in the beginning, uh, as I was tracking animals and things, the North Vietnamese used trackers, very skilled trackers, to try to find our path where we had moved through the jungle uh, and be able to track us down that way. And they were pretty skilled at that. Um, you know, but a dog is much better. Yeah. If you've got a a, a dog that's trained. Their hearing is just phenomenal. The yeah. distance they can hear someone, and their smell. Yeah, so they can hear you, they can smell you, uh, and it's easy for you know uh, the dog handler to move with them and for them to come track you down. So there were times when uh, I had an opportunity to use the twenty-two caliber pistol with an integrated silencer to take out a dog or two. Mm-hmm. Even in the cache where we were planning, to, where we were planning the um, bad ammunition, there was a dog in the air. Yeah. They came up on me and actually tried to attack me. And I shot it with, with the pistol to, to kill it. Um, but yeah, they were using dogs. And I got very good at working um, on trackers mm-hmm. because. If you're following me, I know where you're going to step. Yeah. If you can see my trail and you're you're staying on me and you're focused on the trail, I know if you come to a log, ninety nine percent of the people will step over the log just to the other side. Yeah. That's where I'm going to plant my M fourteen toe popper. Yeah. A small mine. Yeah. That's just going to take your your foot and maybe part of your leg off. Yeah. I. I got good at getting people like that. Uh, sometimes a dog would step on one because it doesn't take a lot of uh, weight to to set it off. But you could also put out uh, if you took uh, some of the CS powder out of the tear gas, the CS grenades, mm-hmm. um, and I like to mix a little black pepper with mine mm-hmm. and put it in a little bottle. You squirt a little bit of that out, you know, on your on your trail where you, yeah. you walk. Uh, If they sniff that up their nose, that kind of messes them up for a while. Yeah, it's hard for them to track you after that. Yeah, Uh, and they get uh, they get scared, so you can slow them down some that way. Yeah, but yeah, they can mess your whole afternoon up because they can hear you so far away.
1: At the end of '68, they decide to close down Fubai. Correct? Yeah. So they closed down this forward operating base, and they move everybody to a base in, in Da Nang, which is a bigger base.
0: Yeah. Some, I mean, most teams went to Da Nang, but some went down to CCC uh, and some other places. And uh, Alabama was kind of you know, disbanded mm-hmm. temporarily. So when when we moved down there, uh, the team leader that had been with Alabama um, when I was with it, uh, he changed jobs once he got there. Mm-hmm. He'd already done you know more than his six missions, and they put him in a, a non-operational job. Um, and they gave me um, RT Michigan because the didn't have a team leader. I only had one. I only had one guy on the team. Uh, <laughs> Turned out to be Eldon Bargewell, Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, one of Sog's biggest legends. Mm -hmm. So I got there, became my team. He was my assistant team leader. So we ran a lot of missions together. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, he was just phenomenal.
2: Yeah, You
0: you could there's there's no one that you could have asked to be your assistant uh, better than him. I mean, wow! Just unbelievable, wow. and wow! You know, I I ran um, I know, six missions or so, I think, with with Michigan, and then yeah, turned the team over to him, and he he became the one zero, and uh, just continued to develop, advance, and he and I stayed you know friends for you know over fifty years, and across time we'd run into each other and it was like i mean he was a specialist fourth class when he was on my team to start with mm-hmm. and then you know a, a few years later when we actually saw each other face to face you know he was an officer yeah and i thought wow that's pretty cool so we talked about how that came about uh-huh. and then i saw him you know a, a couple of years later uh and you know he was a captain yeah and i you know, I've just made major. I mean, he's almost caught me.
1: Right. <laughs> and
0: then, I, then I saw him again a few years later, you know, and, and, you know, I'm a, I just made lieutenant colonel. He, he was a major. Yeah. And then the next thing I know, I'm still a lieutenant colonel and, and he's a full colonel. Yeah. And continuously go <laughs> right on up. And he's getting all of those ideal jobs that I would like to have had. Yeah. Special ops world. Um, but he was just good. I was just the way it was. I mean, yeah, he, yeah. he was just phenomenal.
1: Wow. And now your team is uh mountain yards. Yeah. So that was, that was a whole other adjustment. And there's a good story in the book about, uh, you know, when you're walking with one of them, <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's very different. The mountain yards were, were like the, the mountain people, the hill people. Mm-hmm. And they were kind of pushed back into the jungles and things. And, for the most part, they didn't like the Vietnamese. Mm-hmm. They didn't care if they were north or south. They just didn't like them <laughs> uh, because of the way they have been treated and, and whatever. Mm-hmm. But they they had their own customs that were a little different. And uh, Bargewell and I and, and one of the team members, are, we, we're walking down the company street, and just right at the beginning, after taking over the team, and... Uh, the the mountain yard reaches over and and takes my hand. Yeah. So he's walking along beside of me, and he reaches over and he gets my hand, and he's holding my hand as we were walking along. Yeah. You know, and Bargewell saw the expression on my face. <laughs> <laughs> he thought it was funny. Yeah. And he said, uh, he said, do not turn his hand loose. Yeah. If you turn his hand loose, you're going to you're going to insult him yeah it doesn't mean what you're probably thinking it means right he's showing you his respect yeah that's what it means yeah you need to keep holding his hand yeah yeah that, that's a big honor what he's yeah what he's doing right now yeah and you know so they you know it really hit me at that point wow they do have a different culture don't step over one of them when they're on the ground they they think if somebody steps over them, they're going to die. Ah. I mean, there are all kinds of things like yeah.
2: that—superstitions and superstitions.
0: things that they have. Yeah. That's different from yeah the Vietnamese or the Cambodians. Yeah. You know, so i I had to I had to learn the culture and how to interact with them. They were very good.
2: Yeah.
0: I Marshall mean, had recruited personally recruited a lot of those guys for the team.
1: R.T. Michigan's next assignment was to provide assistance to a hatchet force platoon of approximately 40 indigenous commandos plus American leaders, which was going to interdict the North Vietnamese supply route inside of Laos. The plan called for R.T. Michigan with Dick as the 1-0, and Eldon Bargewell as second in command or one one to operate across the road from the hatchet force to provide security and reinforcements if necessary. Launching on the 12th of January 1969, it proved to be one of the most dramatic missions of Dick's time with SOG and ended with an incredibly difficult string extraction. It taught Dick the following, if you're not moving, you're dying.
0: It was a unique mission Uh, And normally, you know, you get on the helicopter to fly you out, drop you off, you know, like we've been doing so far. But this one uh, was one where they wanted us to to be inserted by walking across the border. Yeah. So there was a unit from the 101st, you know, set up right on the border. So what they did was. They dressed us. In uniforms like the 101st, but on steel helmets, that we we look like a 101st people. Mm-hmm. Flew us in on some helicopters, like we were new replacements coming in to replace the ones that had been getting hit. Uh, so we came in, and then uh, they put us in a, a position in in their their company perimeter, and. You know the the first sergeant that put us in there. He said, "You guys just dig in right here. Yeah, uh, and get your shovels out and and start digging." And the interpreter looked at him and said, "Well, we don't dig."
2: Yeah.
0: <laughs> and yeah, you know, because with with RT you don't. You can't yeah, make you don't have
2: problems. time. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: So I I I told Kuntua, I said, "Look." We we're in their perimeter, in yeah. their territory. Yeah, they all dig in.
2: Yeah,
0: they may get hit before daylight. Bullets are going to be crisscrossing everywhere in here. And you kind of look like the enemy, at yeah. Right, and you're inside their perimeter. <laughs> um, not a good. Yeah. We really need to dig a hole we can get in. Yeah. Uh, so they're not trying to shoot us. Yeah. So. They kind of decided that made sense, mm-hmm. so we dug. We had to go borrow some shovels because we didn't carry them. Yeah, yeah. So we we dug in, and um, and they did. They they got hit that night. There was stuff flying everywhere, but wow. we were able to just get down in the bottom of the hole and yeah, let let them shoot it out. The next morning, or at first light, we got up, still dressed like them, and went down to the river with the watering party. And when we got to the river, while the uh, 101st guys were filling up their containers and stuff with water to take them back to the uh, up to the hill, we changed into our old Batman uniforms, got into our sog suits, mm-hmm. and took the 101st stuff and put them in the duffel bags. And the 101st guys carried those bags back up the hill. Mm-hmm. Like it was, you know, water bags or whatever, and we walked across the river and went into the jungle mm-hmm. moved out um and that morning there was a, a hatchet force about 40 something guys um SOG guys but it was in their hatchet company um they inserted them further on out uh, by helicopter our our mission was to operate on the opposite side of the road from the hatchet force which was going to be doing interdictions on the highway, we were the to be on the other side of the road to make sure no one came down and attacked them. So we were operating security for them. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that was. uh
1: And that became intense because they're the North Vietnamese are trying to get at them. Yeah, and then you're calling in artillery strikes, which was something you had not really done before.
0: Yeah, I had I had done artillery. Yeah, training. So I was good. Uh, you know, at setting that up. So I had I had planned all the pre-planned targets and everything, so I could just call in and say, you know, fire mission. Yeah. Target Monday. Yeah. And they had already set the coordinates and everything for Target Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. And wow. So all of that was set, and so if the bad guys were not right at Monday, I could say, you know, from Target Monday, drop. Two hundred okay. meters or whatever, so I could so just make, make an adjustment.
1: adjustment
2: yeah. That yeah, target. Yeah,
0: and put it right on them. and wow. uh, I mean, we were we were smoking them every time <laughs> we we found some or we heard firing mortars over the hatchet platoon. Yeah, we'd shoot an azimuth to where we were hearing the sound come from, estimate the distance. You know, call in the artillery.
1: Wow! Uh,
0: you know, we were we were taking some bad guys out
1: again you're moving all the time right yeah yeah I
0: have to do a lot of moving
1: yeah and then you got to a point it was on the second day where you came upon a a group of nba uh like 50 of them or so and you had to stop because they're like preparing a meal
0: yeah <laughs> they were coming they were coming up separate ridge line um so we we stopped and and kind of a thick uh, vegetation uh, area to let them go by and you know my plan was once they got on up the ridge a little ways I would call artillery in on them and you know and take them out mm-hmm. but all of a sudden they stopped and you know they the end of their uh their file there was just twenty feet or so in front of us yeah and they all stopped. And they sit down and started fumbling around. And then they're getting out pots and pans and, you know, they stop to eat. Yeah. And to kind of have a warm meal. Yeah. And we're right there at them. And so, you know, we go into our mannequin mode. Nobody can move. Nobody mm-hmm. can do anything because they're right there. Yeah. You know, there's 52 of them and, you know, I think seven of us. So we decided we better not make any noise yeah and uh, and not only did they eat, but then we discovered uh they like to take a, a nap after lunch. <laughs> so they go they go to sleep for about twenty minutes <laughs> and we we're, we're there, can't move, can't do anything, can't pull dishesches off yeah and and uh, they they were getting ready to go, and a couple of them got up. And kind of walked a little just a little ways from where they were, but you know, just a few feet in front of one of our guys, and they relieved themselves into you know being in the bushes. And I'm thinking, this is not gonna go well. <laughs> this this yard is not gonna let these Vietnamese pee on him.
2: Yeah, and, yeah, yeah.
0: oh uh, he's he's probably gonna shoot them, and then we're gonna be in contact with this whole but he didn't. Now he I don't know. I don't know how he managed to restrain himself, but but
1: thank God he they did <laughs> gathered
0: stuff together and started on up the ridge line, jeez, not far enough away from us, and I put artillery on them, and we wiped out the whole group,
1: yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, that was close
1: on the next day, you had a crazy situation where they were going to resupply you, yeah, that's just bizarre. You didn't want to give away as your position. Like, that's the advantage you had. They
0: wanted us to stay longer, so they decided for us to be able to stay longer, they needed to send us some fresh batteries uh, and some water. Yeah. And I got a call from Covey saying there's a resupply chopper on its way to you about 10 minutes or so out. Uh, we need you to mark your location so they know where to drop it. And I... I just said, "Hey, that's not going to happen." Yeah, I mean, you know, the bad guys are all around us. If I mark my location, everybody around us is going to know where we are. So that's yeah. it's just not going to happen. I said, "You can relay that back to the launch site." Yeah, I'm not showing sure you where I am. Yeah. So then he came back a few minutes later and said, "Okay, they made a decision. They're going to drop it at your last known position. Mm-hmm. The last position I had you know, coordinates that I had sent into." I said, you gotta get us killed. Yeah. So, well, I'm sorry, it, he's almost here. And, I, and all of a sudden we could hear the helicopter coming. Oh, gee. So took the team, we went back down to you know where we thought they were gonna drop them. Bargewell took half the team and kind of set up in an overwatch position. I took the others and went down. So when the stuff come falling through, we grabbed it, moved it over in the thicket, kept the water. Moved the other stuff over and covered it up, uh and then moved out. But they knew where we were then. Yeah, yeah. the helicopter was dropping it for somebody. Yeah. So we didn't go far, and we were in contact. And you know, a big battle. Yeah, uh, I mean, they, they almost they almost took us out. Yeah. And um, yeah, and we had to ended up having to be extracted um on strings
1: yeah what a crazy crazy thing that is
0: yeah. yeah so they i mean they almost they almost got us, and I guess one of the really cool things was I put bargewell and the half of the team that was wounded a little bit i sent sent them out with the first helicopter, and the second one came in, and we finally suppressed the fire enough that he was able to take us out so and I, and I I talk to people who complain about their commute to back and forth to work sometimes. <laughs> but, you know, you know I'm I'm commuting home from the office. I'm hanging underneath a helicopter on the end of a hundred and twenty foot rope. I'm seven thousand feet above the ground. Anti aircraft fire is coming up at us. I'm covered in blood. Uh, from my two wounded teammates above me that bled all kind of stuff on me before we got up in the air, because they were both wounded. My my survival radio has got a big chunk of shrapnel in it. My you know, normal radio has got two AK slugs in it. Neither one of them worked, <laughs> oscillating back and forth. I can see my rope is rubbing against the edge of the helicopter floor and it's starting to fray. And I'm thinking, man, you know, is it going to break before we get to a place where it's going to run, um, you yeah, know, it's going to break and I'll fall off. But,
1: yeah, uh, and you're 7,000 feet. Yeah, 7,000
0: feet in the air freezing to death because it's cold here when you're soaking wet to start with from all the sweat. Yeah. So I think about that sometimes when I drive the Atlanta traffic and I say, you know, I can handle the traffic a lot easier than That's I can right. handle commutes like that.
1: And how long was the how long was it's it? About 45 you... minutes. Wow. Wow. And you're just hanging on.
0: Hanging on. Oh, the other but the other part was so Bardwell's group had gotten there first. Yeah. It was fire based. They'd never seen anybody hanging under a helicopter on any rope. So <laughs> That was spectacular for them. But then they realized they're coming from the other side of the river. Mm. They're coming out of Laos. Yeah. So that was a big deal. And then somebody said, there's another one coming. Yeah. You know, so they they saw the one that I was coming in on. So anyway, we got there, landed, and the medics treated my my two guys, they put us in a helicopter. And we're starting to lift off. And the guy comes running across the field holding something in his hand, uh, lifted it up toward me, I reached down, I grabbed it, looked like a piece of paper or something, I grabbed it as we lifted it off. And it was a photo of us coming in. He this guy had bought the newest innovation from Polaroid, this little Polaroid camera. He took he saw what happened, you know, with Bargewell and him coming in. So when the second Copper was coming. He was ready. He yeah. and got his camera, <laughs> took a picture of us coming in, yeah. and handed it to. Him. I had no idea who he was. Yeah, but I mean, he gave me you know the the money shot as far as I was.
1: yeah. No, it's in the book. It's it's. Yeah. uh and,
0: and I still you know I still have it <laughs> the the original picture.
1: Wow, wow. To. No, and it shows the two guys above you, and then yeah, you're a couple hundred, maybe a hundred feet below them, right?
0: Well, yeah, it, more like ten or fifteen feet, I guess. Oh, okay, uh, my rope just happened to be a little bit longer than theirs for some reason.
1: Yeah, and they were injured, so they're bleeding. Yeah, on they were you both too.
0: wounded, and yeah. so as we were trying to to get out through the canopy, you know, they're bleeding, and it's you know I'm below them, so it's falling down. But I I can't call the helicopter and say, yeah, these guys are wounded because the radios are gone.
1: A few days later. With the team banged up from their last mission, our Team Michigan deployed into Area Oscar 8 in Laos to conduct a prisoner snack. Once again, Dick was the 1-0 and Elden Bargewell the 1-1. But this time, three of their indigenous commandos, Kamba, Kiang, and Ata, had to be replaced because they were badly injured. Oscar 8 was known for its high level of North Vietnamese Army activity. Nevertheless, R.T. Michigan inserted by helicopter on January 20th,
0: 1969. So we had a mission. It was go in and, and get a POW.
1: Yeah.
0: So we put together the plan on how we're gonna do it. We're gonna set up an ambush. We'll find a trail where some small groups were Moving on, and then we set up an ambush. Ambush one of those groups. Um, we'd set the ambush up like normal, you know. So you have a kill zone. It just everybody in the kill zone dies. Yeah. With the exception, uh, we're going to put one little space in the center of it where there's no Claymore hitting it. Nothing. No bullets. No one's going to shoot into that area. Mm-hmm. We're just going to have a block of C4. Mm-hmm. We'll just send a blast wave through that hole. So whoever is in the in that hole when we initiate the ambush is just going to get, you know, probably knocked out with the blast. Everybody else would die or run out, snatch him up, and go. Um, so we planned and rehearsed. And you know, this is this is back in the old days. We knew that the Soviets had spy satellites going by. But we had a time schedule for them. Mm-hmm. We knew when the satellites were going to fly over where we were there at UCN. So we would go inside to train and practice when the they were coming across, and we'd do a lot of training practice at night. Um, so they couldn't see us anyway. Yeah. So I thought that was unique too. Uh, yeah. Around with the satellites, but then we went out and. Uh, set up the ambush. We had the main ambush, and I I put two smaller ambushes, mechanical ambushes, out on each side of us. Um, so that if some people came in to try to reinforce um, the main body there while we're doing the, the real ambush, <coughs> we would set those off to delay them. Yeah, time to get out. So, what happened was we were laying there, and all of a sudden, we'd been after we'd been seeing these small groups go through. This larger group came through, much larger. Yeah. I had made the decision. This is too big of a group for us to hit. Yeah. You know they're just going to fold in on us, and we're we're going to be in trouble. Yeah. Um. And all of a sudden we hear gunfire and stuff go off down the trailways where we had the mechanical ambush set up. Yeah. There was another group coming up that way, and something, and I don't know what it was, something spooked them, and they opened fire. Huh. And when they started shooting, that really spooked the big group that was right in front of us. Yeah. So I set off the mechanical ambush down uh, the trail but I had to initiate the ambush that we were in right there. Yeah. So we did, and it, uh, Pretty well took everybody out. There were a couple of guys in in the hole. One had gone all the way down. The other two were kind of staggering. So our prisoner team, um, we assaulted out and grabbed those three guys and took them down, headbagged them, handcuffed them, did all that kind of stuff, and we were trying to trying to get them out of the kill zone uh, in the like former group that had gone up the trail turned and came back down on us. One of our guys got hit in the stomach and and intestines were hanging out. And, you know, so we had some guys wounded. We managed to to get out of there with with three prisoners and we're trying to get to the LZ to get them out. And the, the NVA are just, you know, expanding getting more and more people they're trying to kill their own people so we don't get out with them they kill one before we got to the lz we uh, had to use two helicopters to get out so bargewell took half the team and went out on the first one i came out on the second team we had a, a prisoner on on both helicopters we got up in the air and you know, we're starting to fly away, and I'm looking at Bargewell's helicopter that's up in front of us. And all of a sudden, this guy comes out of the helicopter and heads for the ground. Wow. And I had on a headset. So I asked the the crew chief to ask the the helicopter pilot what what happened? What was going on? Yeah. And he said, Well, um, somehow the prisoner in that aircraft got loose. Still handcuffed, but loose from where they had him tied to the helicopter. got loose. Yeah. Head bagged, handcuffs behind his back. Um, I think 2,600 feet. Head first, traveling. Last time he was seen, he was traveling about 160, 70 miles an hour head first into the canopy.
2: Wow.
0: So we lost him. Wow. Uh, the one I had I just he'd gotten hit with some pretty good pieces of shrapnel in the torso. Um, And there was just no way to get the bleeding stopped. I gave him an IV. We did everything we could. He was still alive when we got back to the hospital. They rolled him into the emergency room, but he died on the table. We'd gotten a little inflammation out of him when we first got him. had some documents and things on him. The other one did too. But all three of them ended up... Dying before, yeah, uh, we got anything else out of them.
1: On February 18th, 1969, our team Michigan with Dick is one zero, and Eldon Bargewell, the one one, was sent to destroy a fuel pipeline that started in North Vietnam and ran to refueling points along the Ho Chi Minh Trail. They made an early evening insertion then move quickly to a predetermined RON or remain overnight site. Just before midnight, a 10-man NVA search team walked within eight feet of their perimeter. The next day, as they inched closer to the pipeline, they encountered something very frightening that they hadn't expected.
0: You know, we we had a yard team and, and they lived in the jungle a lot. their tribes and we're we're moving along right after we got inserted and the port man stopped us and i asked him what was going on and and he said through the interpreter he he told me that he had found tiger scat and that freaked him out the mountain guard Frequently, you know, their villages are attacked, you know, by a wounded or hungry tiger. Yeah. And they'll come into the village and grab somebody and run off with
2: them. Yeah.
0: They can they can reach into a foxhole fighting position with one hand and reach down, grab a, a full-size man, snatch him up, and run off into the jungle with him. Wow. They're just incredibly strong and big, four or five hundred pounds.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Um,
0: so that scared everybody. Yeah, there's a tiger out here around <laughs> us. And then yeah. you know, that night, a tiger ate a dog, and we heard the dog yelping and screaming when the tiger ate him. Mm. Uh, and then my interpreter told me, "Yeah, you know, you know, tiger eat dog." Said, yeah. Okay. You know, later <laughs> on, uh, he told me we heard some screaming, human screaming going on. Said, yeah. Um, tiger eat dog and man.
2: Yeah. So. <laughs> so. Jeez.
0: So that was a little nerve-wracking. And then we had a mission where uh, it was late. We could hear the enemy moving toward us, uh, and it seemed to be getting a, a larger and larger force, uh, platoon-size, maybe even company-size coming at us in the dark. And we knew there had been some NVA around us all day. And I, I had a um, something called a transponder that would emit a little um, – signal beam not an uh, electronic beam and i had requested uh, a specter gunship mm-hmm. to come and in um, this transponder was was designed specifically for them you turn it on
2: yeah. and
0: tell them how far away from that signal you want them to fire and they can just fly around in the circle and put all that ordnance down there 20 millimeter or 105s whatever they want to use and so screaming, hollering, everything going on, you know, as they're putting all that fire on the, the enemy that's approaching us. And then everything got quiet. Um, they, had, they fired up a couple of other positions so that it, they didn't just pinpoint where we were. Right. But when it got daylight and we started to move out, they were body parts scattered all over the jungle, guts, everything except we're all looking at the body parts. <laughs> the body parts were furry. They had fur on. them. These were rock apes. Wow! There's a, there's a myth about rock apes. Yeah, that,
1: yeah, I've heard about that. Some people don't believe they even exist.
0: They're, they're the size of a, of a man, and they stand up. And we, we know we've had some teams attacked by apes come running through their remain overnight position Yeah. And steal things as they went through. Yeah. But we hit these guys with the the Spectre gunship before they could do that to us. But anyway, they it's Covey wanted to know so what's the body count? How many people did Spectre get last night? Yeah. I I just said 40. Yeah. (laughs) I did I didn't I didn't elaborate on the type of bodies that we were seeing, but yeah, Yeah. it's like about 40. (laughs) Wow.
1: And these were human-sized apes.
0: I mean, they were big, yeah. They were big. Wow. Big apes.
1: Wow. Wow.
0: So I don't know if they were really rock apes, but they were big. They were bigger. Than
1: yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I've seen uh, some, some, you know, pictures of them. Even those are disputed. People go, wow, well, that, yeah. you know, they faked the picture. But they look like human. I mean, they look a lot like human beings. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And they stand up and walk around.
1: Dick Thompson ended his combat tour in Vietnam in January 1970 and went on to serve 18 more years in the U.S. Army, retiring in 1986 with the rank of Lieutenant Colonel. His military awards include four Bronze Star medals, two with a V for heroism, two meritorious service medals, and many others. After retiring from the military, Dick founded and became president and CEO of High Performing System, which helps leaders, teams, and organizations achieve high performance. In addition to serving as a senior executive and psychologist, Dick is also an internationally recognized consultant, scientist, educator, speaker, Ironman competitor, and author. Drawing on examples from Green Berets on the battlefield to top-level executives in the boardroom, his book, The Stress Effect, tells us how to make good decisions under extreme stress. In everything he's done, Dick applies the same exceptional intellectual clarity and emotional and physical discipline that he demonstrated as a one-zero in Vietnam. I highly recommend his book, Sog, Codenamed Dynamite, book one and very much look forward to reading book two it's my great great honor to name the extraordinary henry l dick thompson as today's hero behind the headlines
2: heroes behind headlines executive producer ralph pazullo produced and engineered by mike dawson orchestra and score provided by extreme music Please comment, share, and subscribe to Heroes Behind Headlines.